Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine. What's in your life, dear Stephanie? What's in your life for me? Aches and pains, they cloud your side. A tiger did, you said it did. In 60s Southern California, love reigned supreme. Their 1967 album, Forever Changes, is now belatedly enshrined for the ages as a masterpiece. But the two LPs that preceded it, Love and Decapo, are every bit as vital and as strikingly evocative of the time and place of their creation. While Arthur Lee was Love's visionary lead singer and chief songwriter, it's important to recognize the contributions of his bandmates, especially lead guitarist Johnny Eccles. Lee's best friend since childhood, Eccles was his closest confidant and musical collaborator throughout Love's most creative period. It was Eccles, along with Brian McLean, Ken Forsey, and Mike Stewart, who helped shape Love's eclectic, mercurial ideas into timeless, meticulously crafted music. Completed in the autumn of 1966 and released in January 1967, DeCapo revealed Love as musical innovators, fusing jazz and rock with breathtaking results. The album contains some of Love's greatest songs, including Stephanie Knows Who, Orange Skies, The Castle, and predating their jazzier approach, the unforgettable Seven and Seven Is. For this episode of the Ugly Things Podcast, I talked to Johnny about the making of the DeCapo album and the events and influences that shaped it. Today I'm here with uh, Johnny Eccles, lead guitarist and founding member of Love. And um, we're going to be talking about the DeCapo album, which was the second Love album. Um, there's a big, major evolution in musical style between the first Love album, which was from early 1966 
and Da Capo, which was recorded in late 1966, the band moved from a folk rock sound to a new hybrid, jazz rock. So, Johnny, let's talk about how those jazz influences began to filter into your music during this period. We played jazz and and rhythm and blues. That was kind of our staple before uh, kind of switching to a birdsy thing. And the thing was, David Crosby gave us a bit of advice after the first album. He says, you know, you guys sound really cool and, and everything, but you know that we already have a birds. And so you guys trying to, you know, basically clone the birds, it may work, you know, okay for one album or so, but I can't see how you can sustain a career, you know, uh, trying to emulate someone else. So you guys should come up with your own thing. And, you know, we basically took that to heart for the second album because we were not pleased with how the first album turned out because at that point we were a loud, raucous, you know, rock and roll group. And it doesn't seem to really have that, that feel that we wanted, that live feel. And so... We were kind of upset with Bruce Botnick and Jack Holtzman because um, they didn't allow us to record the way we played. They wanted us to, you know, they had these gobos and baffles and things, and we wanted to have the mic bleed, you know, and, and we weren't really interested in, you know, stereo sound or whatever they were trying to create. We just wanted a real live raucous rock and roll group and it just didn't come off that way to us so we changed studios we changed engineers and we also changed directions because we had played at places around hollywood with uh jay contrelli he was a, you know, a longtime friend so we decided adding him to the group and you know going back to our roots you know was probably something that we should try and so we did right so tell me about um you know, how you came into this proximity to jazz music, because I know um, we were talking another time about, you know, one of the regular love hangouts and places to play was Beto Lido. And right across the alley there was Shelley's Manhole, which was kind of the premier jazz club in Hollywood. Can you sort of talk about that whole geography of, of that little uh, area there? Yeah, that was, um, there's a place called Cosmos Alley, and that's where Beat Olitos is located. But across the street at that point was basically the back door to Shelley's manhole. So all of the musicians would be playing there, and they'd come out for a break and, you know, smoke a cigarette or a joint or whatever they were going to do. And they would notice these huge crowds of people because that, uh, they had blocked off both ends of Cosmos Alley was blocked off and they had these huge voice of the theater speakers there. And so, of course, there were way, way more kids outside than could possibly get into Beto Lido's because it was a rather small venue. And so these guys came out and, you know, people like uh, Paul Horn and Miles Davis and, you know, and even John Coltrane. I mean, I, I almost melted when he came. <laughs> but anyway, um, these guys would come across the street to hear us play. And I remember once Paul Horn was, was talking to Charles Lloyd and saying, these guys should, you know, we should do an album with them because they noticed that, you know, we are, the music that we were playing was uh, definitely at that point not jazz, but um, we were drawing like 20, 30 times more people than, you know, these established icons were drawing. And here we are, these basically kids playing loud, raucous 
rock and roll and we're pulling in these huge crowds so uh they were trying to figure out a way that they could you know maybe do some some type of rock music or do something that would increase their audience so um as i mentioned before we were not pleased with the first album so we decided that we kind of go in a direction that was more comfortable for us and so uh we uh, brought on jay contrelli and uh we started doing kind of a a fusion so it would have been a rock and jazz and r&b fusion but it kind of leaned more toward jazz because we were also influenced by gary mcfarland you know we love that kind of breezy airy sound that he had and so we were trying to go in that direction and i I think we succeeded for the most part yeah absolutely uh you know any particular records that you and uh Arthur and the other guys were listening to while you were putting this new sound together? Oh, gosh, I remember just listening to Gary and also uh, Wes Montgomery. He was starting to, you know, do kind of a crossover thing, and we thought that was so neat. So it seemed that music at that point was kind of shifting a little bit away from where it was. And, you know, uh, I think he had a couple of uh, hits on the radio. Wes Montgomery, I think he had um, um, Going Out of My Head, I recall that one. And a couple of other um, yeah. breezing, I think, uh, bumping on sunset. That was it. And so everybody was kind of, you know, really kind of enamored with that. They thought that was so cool. So, you know, as I said, that was another reason we wanted to, to uh, kind of change directions. And because that was becoming, you know, very popular at that point. Now, uh, you mentioned Charles Lloyd. Now, he was actually a music teacher at your school, right? At your high school. Yeah, my, this this thing with Charles Lloyd is so interesting. When I was a little boy in Memphis now, in, in Memphis, you went to the same school from the first grade all the way through the 12th. You went to the same school. And I used to go over these little bungalows where um, the marching band was, and they also had a jazz band. Now, I'm about, I think, about six at that point, and Charles Lloyd, I think he was 12, 13, and he's uh, playing, uh, he played clarinet. And I remember just going over there and being just fascinated with hearing these guys play. And years later, you know, fast forward, Charles Lloyd becomes a music instructor at Dorsey High School. He was attending um, USC, and I guess part of the thing with USC was to um, having some of the, um, I guess the candidates that he was going for a master's, I believe, would come in and teach at schools. And so he taught at Dorsey High School, and we kind of reconnected. And then I learned that family members and my grandmother and grandparents had known the Lloyd family for years. So uh, we reconnected and and, um, got to be very good friends. Right. And and there was also uh, a Chico Hamilton connection at your school, right? Wasn't his son like a, a Dorsey High? Yeah, Forrest went to school with us, and later on he became manager of Love. Now that, of course, was when I had left, but he became um, the manager for the group that Arthur formed after the original members moved on. So yeah, there we we have that again, and then later on Arthur, of course, uh, Arthur recorded with Chico Hamilton. I think he did. What's the story, Morning Glory? So we had a history with him. 
Yeah, I think that was actually Chico's last uh, album. Arthur sang on it. So yeah, you you guys had a history from beginning to end with him. So um, adding Che to the band, and and also at the same time, uh, Michael Stewart joined on drums, and you, and Snoopy moved to her to harpsichord. Correct. So talk about you know what what were you, what was your intentions with that? Well, we wanted a real drummer. Uh, Snoopy, our Alban, he never was uh, meant to be our drummer. Well, see, Don Conker had a drug problem, and so we needed someone to be there when he didn't show up. And uh, it became more and more and more often that he didn't show up, and so Snoopy played the drums, but he wasn't a true drummer. He was a trained classical pianist, and he played harpsichord, and you know, but um, at that point, we had decided we needed, you know, again, listening to the first album, it just, we just felt it, it didn't drive enough. And so we wanted a real drummer. And so we uh, kind of uh, schmoozed Michael Stewart away from the Sons of Adam. And uh, we came to the studio. And that was the first time, actually, when we got into the studio, that was the first time we'd actually played with with uh, Michael. And Everybody just thought, yeah, this is the guy. This is the drummer we want because he was a finesse drummer. You know, he wasn't trying to do like uh, Keith Moon or, you know, how John Bonham or those guys were were playing. He was just a a finesse, very, very skilled drummer that just could keep, you know, he was in the pocket, but then he was out of the pocket. And he knew what he was doing, in other words. He was a real drummer. Right. So that enabled you to start writing material that was a little more sophisticated. Yes, it did. So, you know, let's start talking about some of the songs on the album. The album, okay. most of it's recorded right at RCA Hollywood. Yes. And as you said, you started working with Paul Rothschild and Dave Hassinger, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, we had an interesting story with um, Paul Rothschild. He was recording at the same time. They were The Doors were recording their album at Sunset Sound at the same time we were recording our album at uh, RCA. And the reason, this is, is amazing, but the reason we ended up with um, Paul Rothschild, like we'd never heard his work. We knew nothing about him. But Jack Holzman tells us, oh, yeah, he just got out of prison for selling grass and so you know being kids we just thought that was fascinating to know somebody that had you know gotten out of prison so that was on the strength of that he was hired as as uh, our producer as as i said he's also working with the doors <laughs> he's authentic yeah <laughs> so uh let's you know maybe we can go through the album track by track and you can Tell us a little bit about each song. What you know, what you might remember. The okay. opening song on the album. I mean, that's straight into jazz. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it's in five eight, right? Or yeah, it goes five, to three eight. four. Stephanie knows who. Right, and then it switches to kind of a six eight jazz waltz. So we had the five four from you know like um, take five and and uh, Dave Brubeck. They they did those different time signatures. So we started out in um, six eight and jazz waltz. And then during the solos, we switched to, to five, four times. So the song was never a song that people could dance to, but it was an interesting concept to try and to do kind of a polyrhythmic thing. And so, and Mike was right on. He was able to do that seamlessly. So it's hard to really, unless you really, really are, are starting to tap your foot, that you can denote the change in, in uh, tempo. Right, and, and, the, and the song was written that way, I, I assume, uh, from the start. 
to be in those uh, time signatures. Correct, yes. Come yes. on, come on, come on, come on. What am I now, dear Stephanie? Am I you in disguise? Yeah, the song kind of evolved. Initially, you know, um, this is a song about um, Arthur and Brian had this thing, and they were always dating and going after the same chick. And her name was uh, Stephanie Buffington. And so, um, basically, the song was about her. And it started initially in uh, the jazz waltz time. But as we worked the song out, we knew there was going to be an instrumental break. And so, uh, Jake and Trelly and I kind of conceived of doing uh, where we kind of doubled up on on, uh, the sax and guitar. And it just kind of morphed into the 5-4 because uh, you could just feel the the change. It it was necessary in order for us. uh, Otherwise, it it would have been kind of odd when we were playing this this riff. So it needed to have a different time signature. But the song was planned that way, but then it wasn't planned that way until we got into the studio, if that makes any sense. Yeah. That middle section where it takes off with with you and and Che... It's great, um, and it kind of reminds me of uh, Charles Lloyd and, and Gabor Zabo, you know, in Chico's band, when they would do those things together, you know? That's exactly what we were trying for. You know, we were just enamored with them, and so just to do something that kind of emulated that was just great. Yeah, no, it's, it's thrilling. I mean, I heard you doing that before I heard Charles and Gabor doing it. <laughs> so I, I heard it the other way around, but yeah, it, it, you really nailed it. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that was fun, and it was fun to play on stage for. Oh, I bet, yeah. Even if the audience couldn't dance to it, right? <laughs> yeah. So the next the next song on the album is one of Brian McLean's songs, and that's uh, Orange Skies, of course. Um, a lovely uh, ballad. Yeah, Brian had written that song. Um, yeah, it had a kind of a different feel. If you've ever heard Brian's version of it, it's a different song. But um, Brian, you know, had um, wanted to get some of his material recorded, and we had gone through several of his songs, and um, we came up, uh, we decided rather on, on Orange Skies, and we had to. Basically, we worked it out in the studio, but we had to rewrite Brian's song because it was this kind of, you know, chocolate-colored rainbows and all of this stuff. And that's how Brian wrote, you know, all of his songs were just, you know, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, so to speak. And we just thought that the way that song was written it, it just, you know, it wasn't us. And so we changed it around and Jay Contrelli came up with the flute parts that he would play and it would be interspersed. And I did kind of West Montgomery riff on the song as well. And it became much more airy and much more breezy, kind of jazzy. And that was just, you know, guys getting together and talking it out and, you know, everybody adds their little input. And so Brian's um, kind of show tune morphed into um, 
Lawrence guys. Yeah, it's got it's kind of got that Gary McFarland vibe as well, that breezy thing that you described. Correct. Yeah, yeah, we were very much into listening to him. That's so weird. Now I can't rem- remember the titles of the albums we listened to, but we really loved listening to him. And um, there was this group playing at uh, the Sea Witch, and they were kind of into that vibe, too. So we would go there and hear them. And that was um, Chuck Daniels' band. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, who else was in that band? I remember Chuck Daniels' band. I, what is, I was reading about that somewhere. Was, uh, or, was, or was Jay originally in that band? Yeah, Jay had been originally in that group. That's why we would go and listen. And there's a gentleman, Carl Bird. And he was the drummer in that group. And he also had been the drummer uh, when Billy Preston and, and me and um, Michael Bolivar, who's a huge jazz guy now, we played at the Californian Club. And we were kind of the backup band. And we would play behind B.B. King or C.C. Hill or whomever was, you know, uh, had a record. And uh, uh, the Californian Club was part of what they called the Chitlin Circuit. It was a, a string of black clubs, and they would play R&B or jazz or whatever. And anyway, that's how we first met Carl Bird, and later on we saw him playing with Chuck Daniels' group. All right, okay. Uh, next song on the album, uh, Que Vida. Obviously Latin in- influence on that. Yes, it was. It's, again, we're still in that, that kind of you know airy, uh, Brazilian kind of thing, and that was... Um, uh, Gary McFarland kind of sound, but um, it had um, it started out with a more bossa nova beat, but it kind of morphed into something that was a little more danceable. With pictures and words, is this communicating? The yeah, that's that that's a real cool uh, track and, and real unusual lyrics. Uh, you know, Arthur was really starting to get pretty abstract during some of these songs. Yeah, Arthur had written, that was Arthur's thing, as most of you know, that Arthur was a consummate wordsmith. He just knew how to put words together. Now, he was not that much of a musician, but he had this gift that he was able to get people that, even though he didn't have a, a musical training, he didn't know how to put it into words, he was able to sit there and listen, okay, let's do something in, in, in a certain vein, and we would play, and we would play, and keep playing, and he would say, okay, I like that, or I like that, and he would kind of uh, make a collage of different things that we'd play, he'd put them together, and they'd become a song, and he did this without knowing what to say, or, or anything, he just, you know, had that gift. And it's just amazing how songs came together from absolutely nothing but Arthur's words and a melody, and he would, you know, kind of convey to us what he wanted without actually knowing what he wanted. It's, you know, it's hard for me to express how that, you know, went, but it, it was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's what made the band so special. And, and obviously you guys must have respected his talent so much that you kind of trust him to, you know, take these elements together and collage them like that and just kind of give him the freedom to do that because you knew that in the end the result would be right. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, that's a two-way street. He was giving us the trust and, and the fact that he knew that we were going to take his words and put 
music to them and come up with something that was really cool that he could be proud of, but that we weren't going to take away, you know, like Brian's songs, we had to totally rewrite. Arthur's songs, we basically, there was no rewriting. We did write them from the start. You know, Arthur would start with a kind of a rudimentary um, idea of what he wanted to do. And he would sit with us, usually Brian and I, and we'd work stuff out and work out a chord structure. And then later on, we'd bring in Kenny, the bass player, and Michael Stewart Ware. And and uh, that's how the songs, you know, kind of evolved from just basically uh, tone poems, really. Arthur was, as I say, the consummate wordsmith. But having the ability to know what you like and to know okay this fits here even though you know one of us may have played something just out of left field and he would know where to put that in his song and you know it was always a fascinating experience to see how these things you know morphed into songs from just you know snippets of words here and there and and a melody yeah yeah extraordinary uh the next song on the album is kind of an earlier thing, obviously, Seven and Seven is, because you'd recorded that with the uh, earlier lineup, and, and that had been recorded in June, uh, you know, like four, four or five months earlier. Correct. But let's talk about that song, as we're talking about this album, and obviously that is, you know, one of the great love songs. Now that song is that that's the personification of serendipity about I think three or four days before we were to go to the studio uh, Kenny and I went to uh, Thomas Oregon we had a, uh, an endorsement deal with Vox Instruments and Thomas Oregon was the US distributor for Vox at that time and so we went over to see what they had you know we were going to pick up a couple of amplifiers or something and these guys had um, this prototype of a bass distortion device. Now, nobody used that at that point. That was the first thing, the first time I had ever heard them do that with a bass. Usually, when you went into the recording studio, the bass was recorded pristine, and they compressed the hell out of it because they didn't want the needle to jump out of the tracks. So basically, they're, they're trying to, um, to compress things, but... When we got there with this uh, thing that they'd given us at, at Thomas Organ, they also gave me a tremolo device that was much more, it, it had much more presence than the ones that you have on the amplifier. This one has, you know, a real strong pulse. And we decided to use that on Arthur's folk song because initially Seven and Seven Is was kind of a Dylan-esque folk song. It didn't sound like this raucous, hard, metally sounding you know, record that uh, you hear now when we first did it. It was, when I was a boy, I thought about the times I'd be a man. And, and what he's doing, it's more of a, um, an acoustic guitar-driven song at that point. And when um, we started doing this and working on um, the things that we had picked up at Thomas Oregon, we didn't really know that that we would be using him in that song. But Kenny and I, because Kenny lived downstairs for me, we lived on Lookout Mountain at that point, and Kenny lived downstairs. So we would get together and play, just the two of us. 
and we were trying to figure out how we could use those effects in um, a love song. And so um, when we get to the studio, it's not the the uh, initially when seven seven were playing, it was kind of uh, as I say a Dylan esque folk song, but it just didn't it wasn't just moving it wasn't doing what we expected so we started you know kenny asked let me, let me do this can you you know to arthur he said let me do this you want to hear this and so he did these little glissandos on the bass and it's a distorted loud bass and at first arthur didn't like it at all but then when i did the, the vibrato thing with the tremolo that that pedal he could hear where wow that's cool that's a different sound nobody's done that maybe Dwayne eddie or those guys or link ray but uh, in this type of song, no one had done that before. So the song morphed into what it became in the studio. And the thing was the drummer. You know, as I mentioned before, Snoopy was not a true drummer. And he could not keep up with the pulsing vibrato. But the pulsing vibrato was the song. And so we couldn't stop and, you know, like... The engineers usually say, let's let's do it in the mix. You know, we'll we'll put these added effects on. But we couldn't add it later because when he's trying to keep up with that, you know, it's like a click track. But before there were click tracks and he had to keep up with the, the same cadence and the same rhythmic structure of the vibrato. And so it was hard for a drummer to do that because drummers normally will speed up a little or slow down a little but this song he had to be on the money all the way through he couldn't slow down even for a millisecond and so it took us well over a hundred takes or in false starts you know they weren't all complete takes <laughs> but it took us all of that uh, really well over a hundred takes to come up with the song that you hear now. And 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 what's the story? Who who actually plays the drums? Did Snoopy do it or did Arthur do it? Because Arthur said that many times that it was his drums. You know that's just nonsense. Arthur was you know like any person that, that you can keep time. You could doom doom and do a backbeat. But Arthur was not a drummer, and he it didn't play drums on any songs that we did. He just was you know trying to keep time on the drums. Sometimes he would try to show Snoopy what he wanted, very rudimentary. But both of them were were you know far from drummers. So no, that was all Snoopy doing that. And you know we cursed at that poor kid and and did everything <laughs> we could to get him to to play the song right because as I said he had to be on the money and as he, he couldn't waver at all and finally after you know he's almost brought to tears because he was threatened and told he was going to be fired on the spot if he couldn't do it and finally after some i think well over 100 takes he came up with one and we knew it it did it and so everybody applauded him for you know for being able to actually pull it off yeah it's like snoopy's finest hour on drums and then actually i think that's probably the last song that he played drums on yes that's that's the weird thing finally he gets it right and he does something his best work <laughs> and he gets fired right after doing it you know because you know we had planned on on uh, getting rid of him anyway and you know every arthur was friends with snoopy i didn't particularly care for him because he didn't seem to want to fit in you know and the short story here when he would come to visit 
you know, we would sometimes, you know, have these blenders and stuff, and you'd put bananas and ice cream and stuff, and I'd always put a dose of acid in it to get him to loosen up. So um, I think I must have dosed poor Snoopy five <laughs> or six times. So uh, and he never loosened up. He was still that that guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's great. Um, the next one, let's. Uh, this is one of my favorites on the album, "The Castle." Um, what an amazing song, and, and uh, there's some lovely Spanish guitar picking on that song. I mean, the whole thing is just so much great atmosphere of like Southern California and Mexico, and just that whole world. It just come, really comes to life in that song. Yeah, that was one of one of my favorite songs that we did. It it, it kind of it was a bit different than the, the the way the album was was progressing. Here's my baggage, hand me my stamp. I'm living in a boat, the plane See, that song, you know, was, all the other songs were kind of slightly moving toward the jazz fusion, but then this song was a, basically acoustical guitar-driven song, and it also was kind of breezy and airy, but it was a long way from, you know, where we were going at that particular point. Going back to mother, living on the double. I remember Dave Hassinger says you guys are switching directions and because, um, as I said, the song wasn't like the, the rest of the songs, but Brian started off doing this really neat finger picking and that's Brian doing that on, on the castle. And uh, I'm kind of doing a, an interplay with him, but I'm not using, um, I'm not finger picking, I'm using a pick. But as you'll hear, sometimes there are two guitars playing and kind of doing a, a kind of a, a counterpoint against each other. So that song, as I said, developed in the studio because at first it just sounded too much like a folk song, kind of Hamilton campish song. And we needed to, to fit slightly more into the, the genre that we were trying to enter into, the, you know, the, the jazz fusion. So um, you know, normally when Brian played, he played with heavy metal picks, you know, and you would hear them like on, that's why you hear uh, the difference on Alone Again, because I'm playing that with my finger pads rather than, and it's so soft as it comes in because um, finger pads are different than playing with, you know, the steel picks that Brian used. So um, kudos to him. I think he did a great job. And, and the song was um, played on the radio probably more than most of the songs other than seven and seven is it was kind of a late night dj favorite where they kind of play that a uh, great bass playing too from kenny on that song yes everybody kind of came together on this song as i said it was totally different than what we had rehearsed and it just kind of everybody just came together and and switched it around like when we we're playing the the interplay between the bass and the guitar and and uh, uh brian's finger picking all of that was just you know at the last minute in the studio we kind of developed yeah it's fabulous and, and again this is another song about stephanie right and and the love triangle <laughs> yeah like yeah. a hey, love be a love too hard to choose yeah and um the the weird thing was uh, if I were in my mind that I would do, yes, that's Brian and Arthur again. They had this thing going. They were always going after the same chick. But, uh, yeah, this, so this was one of the, But there was a line that I wrote for this song, and Arthur kept screwing it up. And on the record, it says, you know, when I was in London town, 
the rain fell right now. And Arthur kept saying, when I was in England town, the rain, well, there's, you know, it makes no sense, but he could not get London town right. So um, there was a, a bit of you know, consternation on my part because I couldn't get him to say, um, when I was in London town, the rain fell right down. I looked for you everywhere, but I'm not around. <laughs> so anyway, that that was uh, an interesting. But I think that isn't that in isn't that line in uh, she comes in colors actually. I think. Yeah, yeah. There was certain of the the lines, but um, when I was in London Town, the rain fell right down. That that's coming from from the castle. Um, she comes in colors was a song that Arthur wrote about um, Annette. Her uh, her name at the time was Annette. Bone and now she's Annette Farrell. She's still a very good friend of ours. And she used to wear these colorful outfits. And um, she was dating Arthur. And this time, Brian didn't, you know, wasn't trying to, to steal his girl. So this was a song written for Arthur's girlfriend, Annette. Expressions tell everything. I see one on you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Tell me about that one. That's a that's a pretty complicated uh, song to play, right? Yes, it was. That that was a, a fun song to play, actually. And then uh, the harpsichord parts in there. So Arthur actually uh, sat down, you know, because Arthur used to play accordion, so he played a little bit of keyboard, not enough to where he could record playing it. Uh, but on that song, Arthur worked out the, the keyboard parts with, with Snoopy. And uh, this complicated song came together rather quickly. And as I said, because there, there wasn't this tension between him, between Arthur and Brian, so uh, this was the song that Arthur was really, really proud of. And, you know, of course, his girlfriend is happy to have a song written about her. Was that one of the last ones that was written for the album? Yes, yes. And uh, I don't know if it was ever confirmed that the Rolling Stones, you know, stole that from you, but, it, you know, a year later they had, uh, she's like a rainbow, you know, used that line, she comes in colors. Oh, yeah, they did. They, 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 it kind of be a coincidence. Yeah, no, he, he admitted that. Because um, on the, the song that we're going to discuss at length, he came, Mick and uh, Keith came to the whiskey and we were playing the song. Back then, it was called John Lee Hooker. And um, he heard us playing. We, you know, I'll go back a bit. When Love first started playing together, we were at the grassroots, and we were playing at a place called The Brave New World. And often we would play this one song for the whole set because we hadn't, you know, Bobby Boussoulet of the Manson people, he used to sit in with us, and he was part of that initial grassroots thing. And... Um, so we didn't rehearse or anything. We just went, you know, came to the club as many musicians used to do at the time and says, you know this or you know that or whatever. And you're kind of a cover band. And that's basically what the grassroots were. We were kind of a cover band. Now, at that time, Arthur was playing with Nudie Rickett and Frank Fayette, and they had a group and they were playing in Reno. 
And um, so uh, the grassroots uh, was kind of a pickup group initially, you know, so we have people come in and sit in with us. And Bobby sat in one night and he stayed with the group for a few weeks. And um, so we would play this one kind of jam for the whole set, sometimes for the whole night. That's all we played was this one song. And so that became our signature. And people and, and musicians and other people would come and hear this group play one song for the whole night. And so it's it kind of started from there. And so um, we were playing that song at the Whiskey. Now later on, it, it's kind of become, you know, an actual song. And it's not just a long jam anymore. There are actual words that we sing each night to the song. And um, Mick Jagger came in and he heard us. And... Um, Backstage, there he was asking me about uh, how people reacted to a song that was that long, and um, did you do the same words each night, and you know, and things like that. And um, I guess a few months later, um, we'd we'd already decided we we're going to record um, John Lee Hooker, and it was changed to Revelation because they couldn't get the management to allow us to use the name John Lee Hooker, so it became Revelation. Child standing over there Girl, you look so good Yeah, you look all right Anyway, we heard them doing Going Home and he basically ripped off, you know, so much of that. You can hear the little phrasing and, and the breath and all of that. He just took that, you know. So, um, we didn't talk to him about, you know, whether or not uh, he had ripped the song off, but it was so obvious that he did, so... Yeah. But, you know, groups were like that, big groups of Rolling Stones and, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, they would just, you know, come in and hear a local band playing, and at that point we were still a local band, and they would just kind of co-op things and just rip them off. Of course, Zeppelin is, is known for doing that. And that's funny because they recorded that too at, at RCA Hollywood, same place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the same engineer, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was Dave too. <laughs> Like walking distance from Beto Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it definitely, it yeah. definitely was Dave. But hey, it worked out, you know. But the, the thing, the sad thing for us was, you know, we did this where, first off, we were going to record um, Revelation. You know, I'm using the name Revelation now, but before it was John Lee Hooker. We were going to record that live in studio. In other words, we were going to bring people from Beat Olitos and have them, you know, and just play the song live. But the union wouldn't allow them to do that, they, because if they're clapping and doing all of that, they see this guy was just an idiot. He wanted them to have union cards just to be, you know, part of a live record. So, I mean, of course, that was impossible. So they couldn't, wouldn't allow us to do that. So anyway, we did this song well over 45 minutes. I think it was closer to an hour, that jam that we did. Now it has a beginning and middle parts where all the musicians play their, you know, extended solos. And as I mentioned before, we were probably one of the first jam bands, and we were trying to emulate jazz musicians with rock. So what what would happen is there would be the full band on stage playing, and then as each member took his solo, he would leave the stage, you know, because we'd seen John Coltrane's group do that. So with Revelation. 
they did that, you know, it starts off, I think Arthur does something on his harmonica or whatever, and he leaves the stage, and then I play an extended solo, and I leave the stage, and then Brian does his, and he leaves, Kenny does his, so on the record, you can kind of hear what's happening, but Paul Rothschild had never heard us play this song before, and he had to cut um, close to an hour song down to 18 minutes, so basically he just chopped the song to hell, and it, it doesn't have any... You know, it, it's just song, you know, just uh, musicians playing. It doesn't have a co coherent beginning, middle, or end. It's just snippets of, of the song put together to make a song. So that's why it doesn't sound the way it did when we were playing it live. And it doesn't have the same effect. Is because it's really not the same song. Right, it doesn't build up. It doesn't have the flow that you would have had on a live yeah right yeah and it. when we did it live you know it had this thing and then you got and then you got that harpsichord at right the and that was just tacked on because you know yeah. it, it never when we did it live i think we did that a couple of times after we recorded and, and snoopy was still with us he played the harp harpsichord entrance and the ending but no that was just tacked on and arthur also when we get to the studio this time arthur normally only played harmonica on the song and he would and tambourine but he decided he wanted to play so when the song begins that's arthur playing da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, that's him but the cadence is not the same it, it, you know it's just da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. it's not like a blues thing with ba -boom, dum -dum, dum -dum, you know where it has a, a like honky tonk or some of those songs you know it has a, a back beating and yeah, a exactly. real snappy kind of thing and this doesn't have that and so the song just it was kind of ill-fated you know from the beginning because arthur changed the, the the cadence of the song and then um paul rothschild came in and then chopped everything all to hell so they are not the same songs at all anymore which is too bad because you know uh when we did it live it, it was really really cool it was, and people and other musicians came to hear us do that you know because uh, at that point i think a couple of groups in san francisco were starting to do that but in the california or la area we would have been the the first group to do uh, these long long extended jams you know so that's the album um let's talk about the the album cover where was that front cover photo taken that's a great shot yeah, where the first uh, album was done at, it was um, the old Houdini um, mansion there. Now they've restored it, but the mansion on um, uh, it's on Laurel Canyon, and um, it was basically a burned-out Hulk then. And they had this huge fireplace. It was part of one wall that was still standing, and so that's the same, for, just from a different angle. That's why we were calling it the Capo. We're going back to the beginning. So we went back to the same spot we recorded. Uh, we took the photos for the first album and we did them for the Capo at the same spot. But it's just a different angle. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, for for us, you know, fans, that, that it tells a story, you know, looking between those two album covers, you know. Yeah, that's become a, uh, a kind of a tourist attraction now. 
Yeah, and so it's, it's you know, there are so many little intriguing things about those the album covers, you know, because we kind of thought out how we were going to do that. So, and many people don't realize that we're at the same spot that we were in on the first album. And uh, I don't know if it's, I've been there a couple of times now that they've restored the mansion, but I don't think they kept that wall. I think that was torn down, too. Which is too bad. It, it became iconic. Yeah. I think a couple of other groups went there. I think the Blues Project and some, some other groups went there and did the same the same place. Yeah, that should be a national monument, but no. <laughs> yeah. Here in California, they just tear it down. <laughs> like everything they else. They just tear everything down pretty soon. All of those places that people come in, these iconic places, are going to be torn down and Sunset Strip is no longer the Sunset Strip. You know, the way it is, they took away Tower Records, they're just taking away every... I wouldn't be surprised if the whiskey is next, if somebody just buys that whole block and, and turns it into a, a hotel or something. It doesn't make sense to me why they would take this iconic area and places where people come to see and they want to see this, and all they can see now is a plaque that says, well, such and such a place used to be here, and the Doors or Jimi Hendrix or whomever played here, but there's no club anymore it's just a plaque that's uh yeah money money overrides that i guess over here so you know when the album came out um what was the reaction from fans and critics you know how was it received actually it was received very well initially and we uh would play with the seven piece group we played a long stint at the whiskey and uh i think the the kaleidoscope i'm not sure what the name of it was then but we played there in several places in, in the valley and with the full seven piece group and it seemed to to really have a lot of appeal but um it also was very expensive for us to travel with seven people and um, you know the logistics of, of, of that became kind of burdensome and uh, Jake Contrelli he was older than, than us and he had a, a diff- another source of income so playing with us wasn't you know his main source of income so he's the one that said you know I don't think this is working I think you guys can afford this and so he basically left on his own. And then, of course, uh, we didn't need a harpsichord anymore. And so um, we had to let Snoopy go. And there was bitterness and hard feelings, I think, that, you know, continue to this day. But, you know, groups change and the members change. So you have to kind of go with the flow. But um, I think it was it was rough on him, on uh, Snoopy. Right. So, you know, that album... That really set the stage for Forever Changes, which is the album everybody, uh, you know, rightly talks about, one of the greatest of all time. But I think because of that, the capo sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah, it does. And I think uh, other than, you know, I like the, 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 see, when I'm hearing Revelation, I'm hearing the song that we did all the time that people just jumped up and danced to. So, you know, I have that as in my head. And so when other people listen to it, it kind of, you know, actually they dismiss uh, Revelation and, you know, think of the album that would have been, you know, a masterpiece is what some of the critics say, were it not for the extended jam on the backside. They're thinking that we just threw that on as an afterthought and that, that wasn't the way at all. We were, that was the beginning. We were going back to the beginnings when we played these, you know, this extended jam, but it just didn't 
sadly, it didn't turn out the way it was when we actually played it live. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of thought of as sort of a one-sided masterpiece or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear people say that. Yeah. So you're still playing those songs today on stage, you know, just just this weekend even. Yeah, we still do them alive on stage and our audiences love them. And a lot of the, the, the songs from the first album and a couple we will do. So we kind of have a mixed set now. We had at one point we were just playing basically forever changes but now our audiences have started you know it's weird we have a younger audio of course because people are my age are you know dying off in droves but we've managed to latch on to a younger audience either their kids or grandkids or whatever but when you go to our clubs especially when we're playing in england you go to our gigs and the vast, vast majority of them are young people, and they know the songs, and they sing them along with us. And, and it's, it's just, it, it's touching to feel that we've lasted this long, and that, uh, you know, a whole new generation has found that the music that we played was relevant, and, and that it says something to them. So, you know, I think that's, that's just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's timeless music. It's not like you didn't have to be there to appreciate it. It st- stands up. Yeah. You know, today just as well as it did back then. Absolutely. Which you can't say for a lot of stuff, so you should be proud. No, you can't, you know. There are very few songs that can, you know, stand the test of time that, that does, doesn't sound dated, you know. And uh, when we're playing live or we're playing festivals and, you know, the songs that we play, everybody seems to, you know, as I say, we have a much, much larger fan base in Europe and, and England, so... Um, these people just, you know, the kids just just, just rock out to our stuff. <laughs> You're not a band that had like a couple of hits. It was like it's like a body of work. So it's not like people are hanging around That's waiting to, waiting to hear the hit. Every song is a hit. That's correct. See, we were not a top forty band. We were, you know, an album band where people went out and bought the album. They didn't necessarily, you know, buy. There were a couple like Alone Again and Seven and Seven Is were released as single. So I think A House Is Not a Motel was released as a single. But yeah, no, we weren't a singles band. We were, you know, a body of work album right. band. Well, thanks for talking. I think that's uh, that wraps it up. We uh, we covered that pretty well, and uh, he even told me some things I hadn't heard before, which was great. Well, God, it's been my pleasure talking with you. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Staggs. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat garage and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Ray Brandis, Rob Brannigan, and Steven Schmidt. Thank you, all of you, for your support. 
and thank you for listening. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.